0: Uh, Good. Okay, so we started looking at uh, chapter 3 of John's Gospel a month ago and talking about Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is, uh, he is a persona, a character uh, who for me carries a lot of pathos. You see, uh, you can imagine uh, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. So he is a religious expert. He's, he would be sort of the equivalent of a priest in the, in the church today. And you know, some, some guy from Galilee shows up and uh, he's preaching the, the arrival of the kingdom of God. He's preaching the arrival of uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, it's, it's not particularly what Nicodemus was expecting. And I'm going to mention this with regard to John the Baptist as well this morning. Uh, that there were many who were, found John the Baptist very compelling uh, and and who didn't find Jesus of Nazareth quite as compelling. And Our Lord actually refers to that. He says, you know, uh, uh, we piped you a dance, and you didn't dance. We piped a dirge, and you didn't mourn. Uh, so John the Baptist comes fasting, and John was a very tough guy, had a very strong message, good moral message. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth comes and, and eats with prostitutes and people are like well i'm not sure so nicodemus is sort of caught in the middle of this how do you respond to uh, a person who is uh, uh, many are claiming to be the messiah that you're waiting for you're supposed to be uh, an expert and he's not quite fulfilling the the things you expected so this is why when nicodemus comes to our lord he comes at night and uh Uh, We, incidentally, we know that uh, this name Nicodemus seems to have been a common name for a certain family that was a family of priests in the first century in Palestine. Um, uh, There's been a lot of really interesting work done with uh, inscriptions and sort of graffiti uh, of the Holy Land of this era. And so, uh, again, uh, I've mentioned here and there that john the author of this gospel his information about uh, jerusalem especially at the time of christ is very accurate So a really eyewitness that eyewitness that he knew the very fact that he knows about this episode and the other gospels don't there are many indications that john the evangelist uh, was related to a priestly clan in jerusalem and so he knew the goings-on uh, in in around the temple, and this is this is quite important. Uh, I intend to get to chapter four when we talk about worship in spirit and truth, and uh, what that means uh, as a fulfillment and replacement of the temple. So Nicodemus comes by night because uh, it's if the rest of his uh, uh, cohorts in the in the priesthood would have known he was going to see Jesus of Nazareth, he probably would have had some explaining to do. So he sneaks in. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So um, it's a good politic introduction. <laughs> so. And our Lord, as his, his habit, is pretty direct and just skips all of the pretense and says, "Unless uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I mentioned last time that this word anothen in Greek has two meanings. It can mean again, or it can be uh, down from above. It's a preposition or adverb, depending on how you, uh, the context. And uh, when our Lord says it, uh, he probably means both, actually. But Nicodemus doesn't hear the above part, okay? Okay. So Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, and Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So this is, um, uh, I was just reading this in uh, uh, Henri de Lubac's book on medieval exegesis, uh, And I've mentioned this with regard to the book of Signs. Revelation of Christ fulfills the law by revealing its inner meaning. And and in fact, he reveals our own lives to us by revealing our inner meaning. Uh, It's not something that would necessarily be obvious without the revelation of Christ in the flesh. Uh, But once we understand our destiny as children of God, uh, everything that came before makes sense. It sort of goes into focus in a new way. It's like I was saying to Tony when uh, I was in college and I realized I needed glasses. And uh, I, I got a pair of contacts and I put them in and I just couldn't believe how clear everything was. Nothing nothing outside had changed. Suddenly I could actually see you know, the leaves on the tree across the street. And uh, so I just went... I took a long walk just looking at everything. And it's like the world was new, but it wasn't, of course. It was just I could see it for the first time. right? So our, our Lord's revelation reveals to us the meaning of things uh, at, at their deepest root in, in God, as God intended them. This was something that we could have glimpses of before. But until he says, until he appears on the scene, and especially until he's resurrected from the dead, uh, it's still sort of murky and a lot of our work in the spiritual life uh, as baptized members of his body is coming to reappropriate things in the world according to the spiritual point of view and so he says you need to be born of the spirit you know, uh, which, which he's saying you need to be baptized right? so baptism is the entryway into this new, new life new way of seeing things it doesn't destroy the old life. Uh, uh, the Scholastic's uh, famous uh, saying that grace builds on nature. Grace doesn't destroy nature, it builds on it. So the, the true meaning of God's creation again is revealed through uh, the Holy Spirit working within us, the spirit that we receive at baptism. And it's in learning to see things as they really are, we enter into the kingdom of God because we see how all things point back at God And our gods, they belong to God. And uh, our Lord continues, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Uh, So again, we have these two things. We have, you know, the physical world with its own properties and so on. It itself is a gift from God, uh, but uh, it awaits, it awaits the the quickening of the spirit. There's also another sense uh, that flesh can be used in the New Testament, and it can be, um sort of mysterious obtuseness of material reality to the spirit and um you know we have this uh it can be described in various ways hardness of heart there is this inability to see the truth of things uh that because uh the flesh has its own sort of logic and desires and so uh you know the technical word for this in the latin tradition is concupiscence so uh, the flesh being in a body means we have these desires uh, that our bodies uh, move us toward and then infect our our spirits so the uh, you know the proper bodily problem here as i said is concupiscence where we want to eat more than we need we want to have more pleasure for our bodies than we need Uh, but then this infects the way we understand uh, ourselves as moral beings and as spiritual beings and we want more power and influence than, than really we need to have, you know, and that's, that's what uh, John and Paul tend to mean by flesh. So it's both uh, the sort of mute realities of the physical world, but also this mysterious infection of um, self-centeredness. <laughs> uh kind of immaturity i think is another way to think of it you know um, babies are really wonderful uh they are they're they're very they're innocent they're cute they're um the the world is new to them they they, they have this freshness about them at the same time we all know that babies are petulant and self-centered and (laughs) and need to be trained to recognize that other people like their parents have needs and they can't just get up in the middle of the night Every night for the rest of their lives because the child wants them to. So the child has to learn that there are other people in the world, and I just can't get my way all the time. So the normal process of maturation is we come to understand ourselves as part of uh, a family, part of a community, part of the body of Christ, and so on. But there's this mysterious lingering of that that self-centeredness that wants wants everybody to sort of revolve around us, and that's again uh, another way of thinking about the flesh. So, what's born of flesh has these limitations, both inherent and also this uh, what we call original sin. This this uh, sort of moral limitation that doesn't allow us to free ourselves to to be children of God. <clears throat> On the other hand, when we're born of the Spirit, and we heard this in the uh, in the prologue, when we're born of the Spirit, then our eyes are opened. We we can see the real meaning of things, and we can we can. Relax, if we're not the center of the universe, it's actually okay. You know, when, uh, we can we can delight in in uh, all of God's creatures, and look forward to their final uh, culmination in the kingdom of God. So our Lord continues. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew or from above. Uh, another pun. So uh, the RSV version says the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, the difficulty of this translation is that the word wind at the beginning and the word spirit at the end are the same word. Okay, so... um, uh, This is true both in Hebrew and in Greek, and I think it holds more or less for Latin too. Spiritus can mean breath, Um, it can mean wind, it can mean, it comes to mean spirit, as we understand spirit, by analogy, by the fact that we all breathe, and if you stop breathing, you die, and so like, uh, if you want to check and see if, if you see someone lying on the ground, you want to figure out if they're alive, you check and see if they're breathing. <laughs> right? If they're breathing, the, the spirit's still there, right? The breath is still there, and they're okay, or they're at least not dead. Um, and so it is that uh, breath becomes this idea of uh, uh, the quickening spirit. There's, there's life there. Uh, when, uh, and, and when, uh, say, in Genesis 1 when the spirit broods over the chaos, over the deep. again the the Hebrew word is ruach, and this word means breath, spirit, wind. So there's this, and and, uh, so for instance, when God parts the Red Sea, he does so with ruach, with wind, right? But it's also spirit, it's also breath. So it's as if God is sort of blowing on, on the sea and it parts. And uh, but it's also the spirit, it's God's active life, making itself felt, making itself known. And so what our Lord is saying here is that the spirit, uh, just as with wind, um, I guess these days, science is pretty advanced and we can actually sort of track where winds begin and stop and so on. And I was, we were having <laughs> get a kick out of this. We were having a discussion about surfing uh, in recreation a couple of days ago. Because last Sunday, I, I went for a walk along the um, lake and down by Promontory Point at uh, it, 55th Street or so. There were uh, five or six guys out there in wetsuits surfing. <laughs> it was like 20 degrees. You know, It was really something. And so then we got talking. I, I noticed I lived in Hyde Park there for many years. And I used to go walking along the point because I, I enjoyed the fact that you'd get actual waves cresting there. And it has to do with the you know, the amplitude of the wave and the, the depth or lack thereof of the uh, lake at that point, etc. So we were discussing how it is that uh, wind helps to stir up waves. And it has to do with like how long the wind is and so on. Anyway, this was interesting to me because I hadn't heard before that you could measure these things. And, you know, um, in the ancient world, there, there was no way they could have measured wind uh, This requires sophisticated scientific uh, apparatus. apparatus. I guess it's a fourth declension. now. Um, So when our Lord says the wind blows where it wills, this is our sort of naive experience of the wind. You can't predict when it's gonna come. You know, it's just, you're you're standing there, suddenly the wind kicks up and then it's gone. Then it comes again. And then, you know, he starts a, a little... Uh, whirlpool type thing over here, but uh, it's it's very fickle and and it has its own mind, you know. And the spirit of God is like this, and this is good for us always to remember, um, especially if we if we get sort of too uh, stuck with uh, sort of dogmatic pronouncements. Dogma is great because it gives us certain parameters for understanding God's revelation. But in truth, God being omnipotent, the the Holy Spirit can do all kinds of things outside of the bounds of uh, what what we could have expected from God. And I think this is, you know, just as I said, the very fact that Jesus of Nazareth turns out to be the Messiah is quite astonishing. And uh, our Lord is, I think, trying to shake up Nicodemus and, and alerting him to the possibility that God's Spirit can do new things. Uh, And once we are born of the Spirit, we have the power to act uh, by the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some of you have probably heard this saying of Chesterton, uh, where he said, uh, many people who are not Christians or traditional Christians um, will imagine that the saints are boring, that they're all the same. But actually, if you read the lives of the saints, you realize that every saint is completely unique. And it's actually becoming holy makes us more unusual <laughs> than, than we would be if we, because it frees us to be um, centered in God, moved by the spirit. And so there's this incredible freedom. Uh, I often thought of this about John Paul II. As, as amazing as his mind was, and, and as, as accurate and careful as his writing is, he was very spontaneous, you know, when he was with people, he sort of had this feeling for what people needed and, and he could reach out to people. Um, he was very, uh, his, his um, we, I, I think this is often forgotten about him. His writings are very creative. Um, he was on the commission that uh, advised Paul VI on Humanae Vitae. Uh, and he was, he was slightly disappointed with the document that came out, not because of what it taught. He thought what it taught was orthodox, but he really felt that there needed to be a more sort of personalist understanding of human sexuality. Uh, and so when he became pope, the first thing, one of the first things he did is he devoted his Wednesday audiences to teaching about human sexuality, and this became the theology of the body very creative stuff i i I'm, it's still beyond most people i think you know people who've tried to sort of explain the theology of the body uh come up against the limit that they're not john paul ii but he's the same you know so you see that someone who's moved by the holy spirit has this freedom to re-articulate dogma he, he didn't teach anything that wasn't orthodox but it's it's uh from a fresh perspective that, that speaks to the heart of contemporary people in a way that scholastic theology sometimes limps. You know, it's not quite as direct for us uh, because we're not 13th century people. So uh, Nicodemus is in a similar quandary. You know, so he has all the the education of uh, of good priest of the Old Testament. Uh, and, and so it's actually kind of a hindrance to him seeing what's going on with Jesus. And so our Lord is urging him to understand that there's a, there's a, a new Testament being, being born in the very person of Christ. And the gift of, in, this, in this new covenant is the Holy Spirit himself. So Nicodemus is pretty perplexed by this. And he says, you know, how can all this be? And our Lord, you know, chides him a bit. Are you a teacher of Israel? Again, you do not, do not understand this. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, okay? Uh, but you do not receive our testimony. So it's very interesting that our Lord uses we. And again, it can mean, A couple of things. One is that he could be using it as a general sort of thing. Like we, people give testimony to things they've seen, right? So we can speak with authority about stuff we've seen. Though even that, I would say um, we have to be careful about. There's a famous incident in community history where um, there were some kids, cousins, some some hooligan-ish kids out here in front of the monastery, and I, I told them I had to go home. And uh, they, they started mouth and off. So I said, well, if, you know, if, if you're not gonna leave, I'm gonna have to call the police. And they would have none, nothing of it. And they were, they were, we had construction going out. They were picking up rocks from the construction and throwing them at cars and things. And I said, no, you can't do that. So when the police arrived, after I called 911, just so happened that a guy drove <laughs> into the middle of the kids and, um, uh, thankfully didn't hit anybody, um, but they started you know, pounding on his car and all this. And as soon as the police show up, they take off. And uh, the guy gets out of the car and he's coming over to thank me and he's obviously drunk. <laughs> and so the police see him they're like, well, who cares about those kids? They, they handcuff the, the drunk guy and take him away. Uh, as it happens, uh, when I was talking to the lawyer for the, the driver, Father Brendan, who, who was also there at the time, we disagreed on which direction the car was driving. <laughs> <laughs> I, I clearly was wrong. Now I, I remember it the correct way now, but I had it in my mind that the car was going north. And uh, so even our, you know, our own testimony can be a little strange sometimes. Um, but I think there's another way in which we can take what our Lord is meaning. And, and uh, John in his letters, especially talks a lot about testimony and he speaks about the spirit as, as a witness that uh, the Holy Spirit witnesses to Christ. Um, and we, we uh, see this in all the gospels where uh, the Holy Spirit descends on Christ at his baptism. And that's a testimony that this is the son of God. And so our Lord is is speaking about um, the testimony that he gives, but also that the Holy Spirit gives, and that Nicodemus is not receiving this testimony. And our Lord continues, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So this is a similar kind of thing that he says to uh, Nathaniel in chapter one, right? Um, You know, so great, I, I... saw you underneath the fig tree and you think that's a big deal well what if you were to see the heavens open and the angels of god (coughs) ascending and descending upon the son of man so uh, you see again there's this contrast between earthly things the flesh heavenly things the spirit and john is trying to provoke us to reassess everything from a spiritual point of view Uh, so our lord continues no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Okay, so he's saying, I've actually been these places I'm talking about. I, I, I came from heaven, and so I, I can actually testify this. Um, I've, I've come down from heaven to reveal these things to you. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this is, uh, this is not an easy saying to understand, to be honest with you, and it's one we've all had to wrestle with here because it's the reading on our feast day of the Holy Cross. It's the gospel for, for that feast day. And it's definitely an allusion to uh, the crucifixion, that Christ will be lifted up on the cross as the serpent was lifted up. So this story comes from Numbers, <clears throat> and uh, the people complained against God as they tended to do all through the desert wandering. And uh, so the Lord actually sends uh, seraph serpents, burning serpents who bite the people and they die. And Moses and Aaron uh, express their concern to God. And he says, well, fashion a serpent and put it on a a stick. And if anybody looks at the serpent, they'll be healed. And, uh, you know, exegetes from the patristic era to now have sort of puzzled over what this, Means and and why our Lord alludes to it. Um, I'll just say that uh, uh, several times in John's gospel, it's spoken of that when Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, right? And actually, all things to himself. And I mentioned in the first of the lectures on John's gospel that in John's eschatology and his theology, the crucifixion and death of Christ is the same moment of his exaltation. So this lifting up is already, he's already going back to the Father by being lifted up from the earth. Um, And it's also the case when he's lifted up, his side is opened and sacramental grace is poured forth on the world. And so um, this is what heals the world. And so the people were healed by looking upon the serpent in the Old Testament. It's by uh, faith in Christ and reception of the sacraments that we are healed and saved in uh for real you know not just in this life but for eternity okay is is the difficult Mm -hmm. part of that Mm -hmm. the fact that uh, a serpent is used as, as the image that's part of it yeah yeah uh now, serpents are interesting because uh, you're probably gonna say something about this, but I'll, I'll give my two cents first. And that is mm-hmm. that uh, in many cultures, they have this dual meaning that uh, they're both poisonous and dangerous, but also healing. And so even like, you know, the symbol for uh, <laughs> the Doctors. Yeah, the medical yes. professional oh, is, right, right. is a serpent, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what were you gonna say, Tony? Just uh, that, I,
1: mean, yeah. I was just wondering, I think the, well, I was just wondering, John wrote his gospel in Greek, right? Mm-hmm. His audience was Greek-speaking. Mm-hmm. So his audience would to know about the symbol of the snake, <clears throat> the rod. Probably. We yeah.
0: symbol of the Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it is, it is what God told Moses to, to make this serpent, and it, it remained in the temple until I think it was until the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah and Josiah were two kings who Um, depending on your point of view, they, they cleansed the temple or they were iconoclasts, you know, (laughs) but they got rid of stuff that wasn't, that, that was causing scandal in the temple. And one of the things that, that was taken away was this serpent that had been there since Moses' time, uh, or since the temple was built. Um, and it even got a name by that time. It was called the hushtam for whatever. I, I don't, I haven't looked up what the Hebrew means, but, uh, um, Seraph is, uh, it's a Hebrew word that means burning.
1: I did have a question yeah. about your earlier comment. Sure. What's the Greek translation of the Hebrew?
0: Um, yeah, I, I was, <laughs> my Greek is not as good as my, uh, I should know that. Anybody know the Greek? Spiritus in uh, <clears throat> verse eight. Oh, Pneuma. Pneuma. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So like pneumatic. pneumatic. Like, like an ematic breath?
1: drill uses yeah. air pressure, right? So it means air or breath in
0: Greek. Air or breath, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it has a very similar uh, uh, set of meanings that, that ruach has in Hebrew. Uh, English has, has, you probably know something of this. English has a surprisingly large number of words and, and as a language and that both helps and hinders us because on the, on the one hand we can be very precise about things because we have a word for everything. On the other hand, a lot of word play in other languages gets lost because we tend to translate um, the same words, uh, same word differently in different
1: contexts. I'm asking because uh-huh. uh, I'm also thinking of the, the, <coughs> the word for just consciousness, in right, gnosis? That's probably, gnosis, okay, uh uh-huh. right. Is there a relationship you're aware of between Uma and gnosis?
0: Um gnosis does not appear that frequently in the in the Bible. So um pneuma is gonna be much more common. Uh, we get it in, in Paul's letters to Colossians and Ephesians mainly, uh, Gnosis. Um but uh I would say pneuma is 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 <clears throat> I, I don't know that they they're they're connected to each other. Spirit uh yeah, it, it, the, the spirit, one of the gifts of the spirit is wisdom, which is a certain type of knowledge, very practical kind of knowledge. Um, but I would say in the tradition, Gnosis becomes something a little bit, you have to be careful with it because it, it tends to uh, suggest uh, sort of Greek mystery religions and, and Gnostic religions rather than Christianity. And so the fathers tend to be a little bit cautious about using it, prefer other words.
1: I'm bringing it up because mm-hmm. I, read, I was reading the English translation of the glossary mm-hmm. provided with the 1997 edition of the Feudal hmm and Gnosis refers to the illumination, Yeah, the heart.
0: Yeah, the monks have usually been a little more loosey-goosey on this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we, I'm trying to be yeah. careful. Sure, sure.
1: Because sure. The, you're, cause that's exactly right, the, Gnosis, the monks talk about the illumination that's Essence of the heart, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then Nepsis is the practice of the guarding of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I'm just, I
0: don't want to connect dots where I'm not supposed to. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, no. It's it's definitely a legitimate part of the tradition, but it's always used with caution, especially outside of circles where there's a very strong sort of ascetical discipline. <coughs> because uh, I, I think within monastic circles, there's generally assumed to be a, a, a stronger devotion to making careful distinctions in the readings because that's that's what they do all day whereas say in popular preaching there's a tendency to avoid gnosis a strong emphasis on it because Mm -hmm. of the evocation of gnostic religions
1: it's interesting to me that the eastern traditions Mm -hmm. add a third Mm -hmm. layer of of meaning so they you've spoken of outer meaning and inner meaning Mm -hmm. Uh, eastern traditions also talk about a secret meaning
0: yeah, and that, that's something that definitely Christianity tends to preclude because the revelation of Christ is for everybody. It's public revelation and, and there is no further secret esoteric teaching in, in, uh, in the Christian tradition. So I think that's another reason why Gnosis is, uh, we don't want to suggest that there's some secret esoteric teaching to Christianity.
1: Yes, Yeah, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. And yet there is this sort of practical language that monks and contemplatives use mm-hmm. that, is per- peculiar to their practice, uh, um, as opposed to the the, the these the languages for these
0: outward. Yeah, this is probably why 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 bishops are sus- suspicious of us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, it, it. I mean, I think in, in true monasticism, <coughs> it shouldn't go in that direction, really. Um, you know, again, one has to be careful in understanding. I mean, this is one of the reasons why someone like Evagrius was, was condemned in, in Constantinople. Um, Origen runs into similar problems, that there's a kind of... Uh, even someone later on like Joachim De Flora becomes a little bit <coughs> problematic because there's a new revelation that goes beyond Christ, and it's a spiritual revelation that goes beyond Christ. And this this um, this point of view has been consistently ruled out by the magisterium. So uh, what monks are talking about is that you know, all of us are, are uh, living eschatologically with sort of, you know, one foot in the present world and one foot in the world to come. But it is possible you know, to take the kingdom of God by violence and, and by by one's uh, profession, the by the profession of the evangelical councils to uh, enter more directly into a present realization of the kingdom of God. But it's the same kingdom of God that we're all going to experience at the end of time. It's not a different one for monks and for non-monks, you know. So, if it's okay, I'm going to get back to the text here. Any other questions about this? All right. Uh, now comes this very famous uh, section of John's third chapter, which I won't spend a lot of time on. I just I just want to... Um, I don't want to skip over it, but uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, so first of all I think this illuminates the partly the serpent imagery that uh, there's a clear parallel here that God gives the son to the world so that the world won't perish, just as God gave the serpent to the people in the wilderness so that they wouldn't perish. Um, and, and but should have eternal life and not just be saved in this life but be saved for all time and it's it's so important uh, to remember always we, we should we should never go a day without remembering this that God acts because he loves the cosmos you know, he loves us uh, he loves his creatures and wants us to flourish wants us to be saved uh, it's very easy to fall for the idea that, that God is somehow really angry with us all the time or, or part of the time if we don't do what we're supposed to. Um, but it's actually, as, as Paul says, you know, it's actually when we're enemies that God shows us his love for us by sending his son. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not something we had to sort of prove our worthiness for his son to enter the world, but simply that God loves us. And then this, uh, this next line I remember uh, had a big impact on me when I was a novice. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And uh, so the story was, we had neighbors who were dealing drugs in these <coughs> days. Uh, and we knew about it. We kept calling the police and nothing was done. I was doing Lexio and my cell looked out at this, this house. <laughs> And uh, I thought, yeah, you know, God loves this family. And uh, it's, uh, even though, you know, we're, we're about to pull our hair out because, you know, people drive through the alley and go, beep, beep, beep. And then they come out and do their dealing right next to the monastery. <laughs> and um, I, I really have to tell the story of how it ends now that I've started this. But so, <laughs> so uh, you know, we went to the police. And the, the difficulty is, uh, you know, as I understand it, <laughs> Uh, drug trafficking is, is so prevalent in a place like Chicago that it's not worth getting into unless you can really nab uh, the, the sort of honchos higher up the the, the food chain. And uh, so we we started our bed and breakfast around this time and someone had, it's, it's complicated. Someone had given us a harp and I, I like to play any musical instrument I can get my hands on, but I couldn't, I didn't know how to tune this thing. And we had a, a couple who was staying there and they were here for like a harp convention so i went to my <laughs> and the wife who was the harpist you know can you help me with this and she's explaining it to me and then somehow i don't know how we got talking about this family and her husband says oh i can probably help you with that i'm a federal narcotics agent <laughs> <laughs> and he flies helicopters over the mexican border Uh, watching for for drug trafficking and so within a week we had two guys at at a stakeout in our guest house Uh, (laughs) they come in every morning with their their, uh, Dunkin Donuts coffee and after a few weeks they had tracked um, nine cars that were owned by this family I think seven of which were registered in Indiana and they went and they, they arrested somebody in Indiana and within um, another month or something, this, this family had to sell their house because they, they lost their income and we bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, th- another interesting thing about the, the story is that uh, we've actually maintained contact with the, the mother of the family. She, she actually is, has had masses offered here. I don't know what's happened to them, um, but, but hopefully they're, uh, the father's making an honest living at this point. But. Um, that, that's we were thinking of leaving Chicago because, you know, um, it, it just it couldn't have these drug deals going on right outside our house. And then uh, God took care of it. But anyway, um, whoever the people are, you know, if, if, if they're monks, if uh, they're drug dealers, if they're entertainers, if they're uh, uh, plow drivers or whoever, God loves all of these people and the, the son of God doesn't come into the world to condemn the world. Uh, but it might be saved through him. And it's interesting how, it's, how we're saved. It's actually, you know, through his death and resurrection. And again, not precisely through uh, gnosis. It's actually through the sacramental grace uh, of baptism, right? So it's a, it's, a, it's a process that makes use of God's creatures, God's physical creatures like water. Uh, so he who believes in him is not condemned. Now here, let me back something up here. When we see in the New Testament, faith or belief spoken about, we have a tendency, because of our contemporary uh, English language prejudices, to hear in this uh, an act of the will or an act of the mind. So belief means I'm gonna think something. Uh, However, uh, I'm personally convinced, and I I could go into a, a long argument trying to prove this, but I'll just suggest it to you. Whenever, Paul or John talk about belief, they mean, uh, you know, fidelity to this new covenant, which means being baptized. Uh, so if, uh, if if you believe in Christ, then you would be baptized. And and you would receive that sacramental grace. And uh, you would participate in the death and rising of Christ in your body. So it's not just something we do with our minds. It's something we do by a public act of faith of, uh, of fidelity you know just as uh say a soldier who goes into the military in the ancient world would be branded so you know which which legion he belongs to if you're a soldier of christ you get in the font and you're branded with the sign of the cross you know and uh that sign that that uh, each of us bears because of our our baptism you know this is a, a warning to the demons to stay away maybe <laughs> because we serve christ right we're, we're marked with his sign um that's what belief means. And so, you know, a good soldier is, is faithful to his commander, is faithful to his uh, fellow troops and so on. Um, a good believer is faithful to Christ and faithful to the church. And uh, so belief, um, we're not condemned if we've been baptized is what I'm getting at. It's not, it's not a question of trying to sort of gin up the right thoughts, but it's, it's remembering that Christ has claimed us for his own because we made that act of belief by, by entering the font. And we renew that every time we enter back into the church, sign ourselves with holy water, and receive communion. So, um, so yeah. Uh, can
1: Can belief be simpler than that? Is it possible? Can belief just be an act
0: of love? Um. Uh, well, it depends on what you love. <laughs> I guess.
1: And of course, yeah. I don't know if I love ever. I can't say that. Christ other in the Eucharist, but if, uh, is it possible that, I almost want to say that it almost doesn't matter me if the stories are true or not, I love what I know about them.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. I, I but I wouldn't counsel that for no, general no. consumption, but um I you know I would just say that the tradition does make room for uh baptism of desire. Oh, and so uh, you know, the the church has never uh while the church canonizes saints and makes official proclamations that certain persons are in heaven, the church has never proclaimed that anyone's in hell. Okay, so it's all it's always possible that uh you know, by a desire for truth and goodness and, and a desire for God, however unexpressed it is, how you know, that God, because God loves everyone, that he'll honor this in some way. But this, it's, it's called a baptism of desire because baptism, we, we have to understand, you know, the church has always said that baptism is necessary for salvation. And the normal way of being baptized is to get into the font, you know, uh, and, and be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and our Lord, that's the great commission is to baptize you know not not to urge people to love but to baptize <laughs> you know and of course um it's not that they're not connected to each other but i think um it's important that uh, for reasons I, i'm not going to go into right now but it's important that we understand the, the the physical connectedness that comes from this act of baptism uh that, that we really are a body that that, that has been constituted Otherwise, again, one of the problems with gnosis is that it tends to disregard the body and, and, and uh, with, with problematic consequences, I think. Uh, I'm going to go back here again. So two things more I want to cover before we stop today. The first is uh, at the end of chapter 3, uh, we have this. After Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea, uh, he remained with them and baptized. So this is very interesting. John's the only one who talks about Jesus baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem uh, because there was a lot of water there and people came and were baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying um, and this unnamed Jew is usually understood in the tradition as either our Lord himself or one of his disciples. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, He who was with you beyond the Jordan, meaning Jesus, to whom you bore witness, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So John answered, No one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Okay, so uh, John is at pains to make sure we understand that uh, John the evangelist, is it pains to make sure we understand that John the Baptist isn't the Christ. And the reason is that uh, I think into as late as the fourth and fifth century, there were still uh, groups of Jews who thought of John the Baptist as the Messiah. And we we have evidence of this. Uh, We also know from the Acts of the Apostles that many places the apostles went. People had heard about Jesus, but they had only received the baptism of John. So they needed to be baptized with the, the baptism of Jesus. Okay, So John, as I mentioned, was a very compelling and powerful figure, uh, but his, his job was to bear witness and not be the Messiah himself. And he has this lovely line then. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Okay, So in other words, Jesus is the bridegroom. His bride is the church. Uh, the friend of the bridegroom, or as I like to say, the best man who stands and hears him, to testifies, right? That's the job of the best man is to ratify the, the vows and give witness that this, this marriage took place. Uh, this bridegroom who stands and hears the bridegroom's voice rejoices greatly. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. So uh, this is just such a beautiful uh, testimony of John to uh, the fulfillment you know John the Baptist is the last of the prophets and all of all of the prophets in in the person of John are rejoicing at the fulfillment of their prophecies that Christ has come and uh, what had been understood in a kind of shadowy way by the prophets of old we see now before us we see God's Son uh, we see him claiming the church for his own claiming the new israel as his bride and then john the baptist finishes off by saying he must increase but i must decrease uh, so uh, good good words for us all that uh, if, if we're good disciples of christ he continues to increase in us okay um, now chapter four is primarily taken up with the story of uh, the woman at the well in Samaria. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I just wanna point to uh, certain things today and probably um, we might take it up again next time. We'll see. So uh, the scene is that our Lord and his disciples are passing through Samaria. And as I'm sure you know, the uh, Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along very well. The Samaritans, interestingly enough, had the same scriptures as the Jews, but only the Pentateuch, only the first five books. And uh, because of uh, the Assyrians, when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdoms, they resettled people from all over their their kingdom uh, in this area, and so a lot of pagan influence entered into Samaritan practice. And uh, it was considered bad form to have anything to do with Samaritans, uh, if you were Jewish, and vice versa. Uh, so it, it's, it's quite striking, and, and uh, the Samaritans could make you impure, you weren't supposed to eat with them, etc. So it's quite interesting that Jesus sits down at this well and that the text tells us he's tired, uh, so he definitely, he's definitely human. And then a woman of Samaria comes out at noon to draw water, and as Father Brendan likes to point out, this is an indication of, of the pathos of her story. Um, you, you don't go out and do heavy work at noon in the Holy Land. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a bit like, uh, um, I've heard stories of uh, the guys were in Brazil. Like you work until like 10 or 11 and then you have your lunch and some Kinshasa and you, you're out for like three hours until it starts to cool off again and then you go back to work. But basically the middle of the day is uh, uh, siesta time um uh, it's it's not dissimilar from a, a warm climate like the holy land so a woman coming out to draw water at noon is probably someone who doesn't want to meet anyone okay and we find out later on she's led something of a scandalous life um but our lord you know uh intends this this uh, encounter and it's a good example of of uh, god sending the son into the world because he loves the world uh Meanwhile, the disciples go off to buy some food, and so our Lord is alone, and this woman comes up to him, and uh, he asks her for a drink, that, that uh, she's got the bucket and everything to pull up the water, and uh, she, she asks, you know, you're not, why are you asking me? You're not supposed to do that. Uh, and uh, our Lord, again, is, as is his habit, instead of answering her question directly, uh, sort of Answers it indirectly by a further question: If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, "Give me a drink," you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. <clears throat> so this there's so much in this saying of our Lord's: If you knew the gift of God, and this is another one of those things that it's good to ask ourselves this every day. You know, do I know the gift of God? <laughs> um, and uh, again, I would say what our Lord is referring to is baptism. Uh, it's, it's salvation in the body of Christ, salvation in the new Israel and the church. And obviously the theme of water is important here. We're at a well. Uh, if you knew who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink. Uh, so this is interesting too, because we know as our Lord is being crucified, he, he says, I thirst, right? And this physical desire that our Lord has for, for water that, we, that he shares with all of us who are human is also a symbol of his thirst to be united to the bride. That, and This is what the, the tradition teaches us in, in many different places, that our Lord is thirsting not just for water, but for the souls of his creatures uh, to be saved. And uh, so if you knew who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink you would know that he's thirsting for your soul and you would ask him to give you living water. Now this word living water again, uh, it's a pun in Greek yet again, uh, double meaning. Uh, Living water can also mean running water or fresh water. Okay, and that's a real important commodity in desert environments to be able to find that, actually anywhere. I mean, even if you go to a place like Italy, Uh, you know stagnant water you want to stay away from it's 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 death-dealing water this is uh, why running streams uh are, are tend to be safer they don't they don't contain pestilence and things like that so uh but it's this fresh water that gives life again you know that's that's the thing it's living water in the sense that it it gives life it carries life with it um so the woman says to him uh well, sure, I'd ask you for water, but you don't have a bucket, right? You don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water from? Are you greater than Jacob, a little irony there, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? And again, our Lord doesn't answer a question, but says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, right? So there's, here's that contrast between our bodily existence, material existence, and spiritual existence. If you drink of this water, you're going to get thirsty again. Whatever drinks of the water that I'm going to give will not thirst. And not only that, but the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, so this is in baptism, the gift of the spirit that frees us from the bonds of death. Okay. and so finally, the, uh, the woman figures out what's going on here and says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and he whom you now have is not your husband. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, symbolically related to what was considered to be the idolatry of the Samaritans okay so idolatry in the Old Testament is frequently um, represented by infidelity in marriage and uh, so this woman I think we can take this as literally true Uh, as I mentioned uh, the fact that she comes to draw water at the middle of the day means she's probably not a very popular person and has a history and our Lord has uncovered it right he's we, we remember at the end of uh, chapter 2, it says, you know, our Lord didn't need anyone to tell him about people because he knew them. <laughs> so he, he, he sees what's going on with this, this lady here. Uh, but there's also this symbolic meaning that these are uh, the idols of the Samaritans. And even though Samaria is traditionally part of Israel, it's, they've been cut off from the covenant. And so they've been cut off from God, their, their bridegroom, okay? And so the woman is living with someone who's not her husband. So the Samaritans are worshiping uh, n- improperly. Let's just say uh, the Samaritans had their own temple. Um, I'm not sure if it was the same one that was built by Omri uh, in the one of uh, the, the father of Ahab of uh, sketchy memory. Uh, so. So uh, our Lord says, yes, yes, you've spoken truly about not having a husband. And the woman says, uh, again, with, with great uh, acumen, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So this is very interesting here. So there's, you know, one of the problems is, as I mentioned, that uh, one of the kings of, of the old Northern tribes, Omri, Uh, built his own temple and this was considered wrong because the the one temple that that maintains the idea of one God is the temple in Jerusalem so this is a dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews where is the right place to worship and uh, again interestingly our Lord instead of saying uh, uh, yeah yeah well actually we're right and you're wrong you should come to Jerusalem to worship. He says, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews." Uh, another line we should we should say over and over again: <laughs> "Salvation is from the Jews." Our Lord is. Uh, I, I like to point out to people, you know, aside from uh, the people in the south transept over here and the Magi, um, everybody else in the windows are Jews. <laughs> you know, that uh, um, this, is, this is the, the stock of our, of our faith, comes from the Jewish people. So it's true, the Jews worship what they know. They, the, the Jews have a relationship with God. The Samaritans have broken with this relationship, and so their worship of God is somewhat murky. It doesn't doesn't point to God as clearly as worship in the Jerusalem temple does. However, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So once again, we have the temple, which uh, before the coming of Christ was the place where the true God was worshipped, um, but its validity is is now revealed and sort of broken open. This is why in the Synoptic Gospels, when our Lord uh, is crucified, the, the curtain that veils the Holy of Holies is rent. And so uh, where God had been sort of localized in this one place in Jerusalem, with the coming of Christ, uh, we now have... God's presence everywhere uh, we can know God everywhere we can see God in all things we can understand how God's creatures relate back to God um, we can have multiple altars for example um, uh, in, in one sense all the altars in the Catholic Church are are the same altar they're all Christ but uh, we can have multiple altars precisely because God's Spirit has been poured forth on the world and God's presence is <coughs> sort of waiting to be discovered in all things. If we, if we have the spiritual point of view, if we worship in spirit and truth, then God's presence will be uh, clear in all these things, or at least potentially clear. God also hides himself if he wants us to, to uh, strive forward in, in spiritual sight. Um, now, there was something I was going to tell you uh, about this with regard to... Um, this, the story we heard in the gospel today with the... Uh, so the lepers... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So th- this is the last thing I wanted to tell you today. Uh, just a little bit about the Jerusalem temple and how it was understood. So uh, one of the things the ancients were really concerned about, and you see this in many cultures, the two I'm most familiar with are, are ancient Israel and the ancient Greeks, is this great concern about the problem of change and reconciling change with stability. So how is it that um, I'm the same person I was when I was 10, but I'm much taller and I know a lot more and my hair is getting gray and uh, my knees are bad. You know, Uh, I didn't have that problem when I was 10. Uh, How is it that I've changed but remained the same person? Change is also a problem because things that change tend to pass away and, and cease to exist. And that's true of our bodies. We will, uh, unless our Lord comes before we die, uh, we will go to the grave and our bodies will fall apart. And uh, the animating soul, the the thing that made us who we are, that kept our bodies together, when that departs, the body starts to to disintegrate, right? It's no longer integral. And this this is something that um, I think for obvious reasons exercised the ancients a lot. How how do we know the truth when things seem to be in flux all the time? And famously, one of the answers is given by Plato that there's this realm of unchanging ideas that's the real world, and this world of images where change takes place um, is only kind of an approximation. We're looking at shadows, as it were. Uh, But the the ancient Israelites had a similar kind of understanding except they located the source of stability in God. And where God was present, uh, God's creatures were ordered in a way that they were complementary and stable. And so this is one of the reasons why in the creation story, you know, there's such an orderly sort of telling of things. Things are all put in order. They're not chaotic anymore. So the opening uh, chaos of the deep, tohu vabohu is the, the, the um, waste and, and uh, wild or whatever it is. Um, God speaks and God's rational speech orders things. And when things are ordered, they are, they have a kind of permanence and stability because they're imbued with God's spirit. And what happens is when Adam and Eve sin, the thing sort of goes out of joint and gets separated from God and things start to disintegrate again. Okay? And so what our Lord is doing is bringing things back into right relationship with God so that they remain permanent. Uh, the temple, what the temple has to do with this is, as I say, that was the place where God lived. And so that was the place of permanence. And the closer you got to God, the more stable, the more perfect, the more peaceful, uh, the more orderly things were. The further away from the temple you get, the, the more disorderly and disintegrated you get. And the purpose of the sacrifices was uh, to reinaugurate God's creation. So when when the sacrifices were offered to God and the impurities of the people were wiped away, God's revivifying energy could kind of go forth from the temple and restabilize the whole people of Israel. Outside Israel, there's not a whole lot of stability. Okay, the Gentiles were, you know, kind of chaotic and uh, a problem. Uh, but what our Lord is saying is that uh, so the the problem is if you're a leper and you have your skin is is falling apart, uh, you you you're part of that that realm that's separated from the temple, and until you're healed, you can't take part in in worship. Okay, so the lepers were not allowed to take part of the sacrifices, um, and this is. Uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons why our Lord makes uh, a point of healing lepers, because he restores them then to their right relationship with God uh, and uh, right worship. Okay? Um, but there's going to be uh, uh, a new order of worship, as I say. And, but the, the principles are very much the same, and that is that in God, there's permanence, there's peace, there's order, there's, you know, relaxation. Uh, away from God, there, there is strife and disintegration, etc. But the difference being that God's Spirit is now being poured out of all of creation. And uh, as um, Isaiah and others say, you know, the knowledge of God will be, you know, will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so everything... Um, What the fathers called this was natural contemplation. We can look at at anything that God created and see God's intentions, how it fits into the order of things. And so all of the things we see become a moment where we can praise God and worship Him. Uh, We build churches uh, in order to help us, you know, be continually reconform to God's spirit so that when we go out into the world we can uh, bring God's peace to the world. Uh, so uh, I'm going to stop there and but perhaps there are some questions about something I've said.